Thank you, Elliot. All right, if you want to turn to Hebrews 2, uh, 1, we'll get into 2, but we're going to start in Hebrews 1. Started a series in Hebrews last week, and uh, we'll continue today. Um, one of the names for the age that we live in uh, since about 1970 is the information age. This time in history is characterized in part by just how easy it is to access and share lots of information. Computers, TV, and radio, and phones. We just prayed for the catastrophic events um, over in Northern Africa. You found out about those events, or you could have, within minutes of them happening. All the way down to fairly minor things, like if a pitcher in a, on a, a New York baseball team throws a curve you can know about it within seconds. Or if some random person somewhere in the world has an interesting thought or a thought that they think is interesting that they want to share with the world, they can do that and everybody can find out about it within seconds. And this ease of information, of sharing information, has led to an overwhelming amount of information out there. I just did a little research around 252,000 websites are created every day. 7.5 million news articles are published every day. And this was a few years ago for that one. 500 million tweets, and I don't even know if they're called tweets anymore, but are tweeted every day. And you have instant access to virtually every TV show and movie that has ever been created. There is so much information. And all of this information is vying for your attention. And you have advertising and, and feeds and notifications telling you to watch this show, get up to date on this drama, check the scores of this game, see the latest polls in this election. And when everything seems urgent, nothing seems very urgent. When everything is presented as important, nothing seems very important. It's just an overwhelming amount of data. And the end of the passage that we'll cover today reads, Therefore, start of chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The Christian gospel comes with a call to pay close attention to this message. This message is weighty, urgent, and necessary. In, in a world of so many messages coming at us every day, this one is different. This is not just another notification on your phone, another news story. This one is different. And the reason it's different is what this passage is all about. The therefore, the beginning of chapter 2, takes us back to chapter 1, and to what is argued there. So we're going to work through that argument and then come back to that warning about paying extra careful attention to this message at, in chapter 2. So we're going to start in verse 4, Hebrews 1, verse 4. But since that verse 4 comes in the middle of a sentence, we're going to back up and just read from the beginning and cover the verses we talked about last week to get some of the context, okay? So starting at the beginning of Hebrews, uh, but really we're going to jump off from verse 4. 
Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also, also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the world of, word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then here's verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So as we said last week, uh, God is a speaking God. For in many times and in many ways, long, for a long time, God has been speaking through prophets, making himself known, revealing to humanity what he is like, and calling us, calling humanity into a relationship with him. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and this is a momentous, world-altering occasion in the timeline of God's story, and in the timeline of history. And so the author says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God speaking. And he is a greater and more full and more significant revelation of God because of who he is. He is God in the flesh. Every part of him, not only his words, but including his words, but also his actions and everything about him reveals to us with 100% accuracy who God is and what God is like. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And then verses 2 and 3, which we covered last week, give us seven qualities about Jesus, all of which point to him being of one nature with God, having the same rights and powers and existence as God the Father. Now, understand that this is at a time, the author's writing of this at the time, when there was much debate about the nature of Jesus, even among those who believed in him and believed that he was the Messiah and Savior and these debates would continue for a couple hundred years, and, and to a degree, they still continue. What does it mean for Jesus to be human and divine? We have this nicely laid out in, in creeds that have been worked out over the centuries, but they didn't have this. The, the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah, God to send this anointed one, and they knew this was Messiah would come from God and would be great, but they didn't expect this Messiah to be God. That, that was a radical idea. And so the author of Hebrews is speaking into this and making it clear who Jesus is. And as he begins to make the case for Jesus being God and being supreme over all things, he begins here in this book of Hebrews, and that's Kind of the big idea of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is supreme over all things. He begins his argument by comparing Jesus to spiritual beings, angels, that many revered and were fascinated with. He says that man, who, who lived just a few centuries ago at this time, that man is greater than the angels. He's greater than angels who are ministering before God and for God. Now, there are a couple things going on here. The immediate argument is that Jesus is greater than the angels. In his role, in his name, he says, in his identity, Jesus is greater than the angels. But this 
argument is set inside a larger argument about God's revelation through Jesus, which we saw in the first two verses, which we'll come back to in chapter 2. You see, the Jewish tradition was that the Old Testament, especially the law given through Moses, was given through angels. Hebrews 2.2, 2, you'll, you'll see mentions this, other voices, uh, verses point to this. And so the larger argument, and, and I'm just setting this up so you see kind of where we're going, the larger argument being made here is that because Jesus is greater than the angels, the message that he brings and the salvation that he brings is more urgent, more complete than the message given by angels, that is the Old Testament, okay? So this is ultimately about the revelation of God through Jesus. Jesus being greater than the angels is just one part of that argument. So we'll come back to that. Now, the rest of chapter 1, which we're going to work through here, it has a bunch of references, quotes of the Old Testament, 7 to be exact. We're going to go through these one at a time and unpack them a little bit. And I'll just note up front, if you're not familiar with how the New Testament um, uses the Old Testament, how New Testament authors often use the Old Testament, these passages, most of them are Psalms, these passages in their original context don't, um, aren't obviously speaking about Jesus. When you, when you go back and read in this Psalm, it's not obvious like, oh, that's Jesus. I mean, maybe for us from our standpoint, we might see that, but that wasn't the case originally. Some of them are actually speaking about a human king, as we saw in Psalm 2 a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Some of them are speaking about God the Father, Yahweh. But the New Testament authors, taking cues from Jesus himself, go back to the Old Testament in light of Jesus, in light of who Jesus is and what, what he's come to do, and see that these passages are ultimately pointing forward to Jesus. They have an ultimate fulfillment in him. They have a partial and limited fulfillment in their time and context, but a greater, fuller fulfillment by God's design. This is all purposeful in Jesus. Okay? So that's a long setup. We're going to walk through these uh, seven Old Testament references here, and then we'll get into the first few verses of chapter 2. So in, chap in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Uh, this is obviously a rhetorical question. The answer is to none. This is not what God says to angels. Now the first part there is a reference to Psalm 2, which we covered a few weeks ago, kind of in preparation for this. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It is about the kings, specifically the the kings of Judah, the kings from the line of David, the Davidic kings. And in its context, it's speaking of the Davidic king having a son-like relationship with God. Israel as a whole was called, often called a son of God, and the king as their representative also could be said to have this relationship. But the author of Hebrews is applying this to Jesus particularly, seeing him as the greater and ultimate king from the line of David. And this is explained a little bit better by the, or a bit more uh, fully, by the second quote there in verse 5. 
And this one is from 2 Samuel 7. As I did a couple weeks ago, let me read this passage where this has come from, uh, where this comes from. God is speaking to King David through the prophet Nathan. And we are jumping around a bit today, so bear, bear with us, but we're trying to give some context for these passages. So 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and he shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's the quote, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's this forward-pointing aspect to this of a throne and kingdom that will be made forever. Both Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 here have a near and future fulfillment in view. They contain some grand universal promises and hopes that are never fulfilled in any human king. They show that ultimately no human means or method will bring about God's good and righteous rule, God's kingdom. And that seems to be the point. In the words of 1 Corinthians, God's purpose is that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord. That no human being, as 1 Corinthians goes on to say, might boast in the presence of God. God's grand purpose in all things is to direct our hopes and trust and confidence and boast and glory and joy to God himself and not to any human being. Salvation is of the Lord. No king or ruler or gifted individual then or now can bring about God's righteous rule, God's kingdom, God's peace, can be the righteous, wise, and humble ruler we need, is deserving of the worship and praise that God himself is deserving of. Don't be fooled by the campaign promises of politicians or the marketing campaigns of products or the slick veneer of celebrity and online personas. They will let you down. They can't fulfill what they, ev they themselves even claim. No human being will do. And so even after David dies and his son Solomon dies, who it seemed for a bit that maybe Solomon was the answer, Maybe these things would come true in Solomon. Even after they die, God continues to give prophecies about a promised king from the line of David. One of them from Ezekiel 34 stands out. It says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. So David's dead at this point, but speaking of a future king from the line of David, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Okay, coming back to Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is saying that this descendant of David, long spoken of, whose throne will be established forever, whose rule will be righteous and good, this 
One who will be a son of God, the shepherd who will feed the people of God, is Jesus. And even though angels minister before God and do the bidding of God, they do not have this relationship with God. Jesus is greater. Verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is a, a, a loose reference to either Deuteronomy 32.43 or Psalm 97.7. And in context, both passages are speaking about Yahweh. God the Father. And, and, and they are calling the angels to worship God. In context, there's no hidden meaning that this might be about Jesus. However, the author of Hebrews has already argued that Jesus is God, has all the rights and powers and honor of God, and so he uses this verse to say that the angels worship Jesus. That man who, who lived just recently, who was seen and touched and, and known by, by many, angels worship him. It, it, when you think about it that way, it seems a little bit more startling than, than you know, if you've been in the church for a long time. Oh, of course, the angels worship Jesus. No, that, that, that man who was just alive, like, he's God and angels worship him. Verse 7 then shifts to speak of angels and, and their role. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, uh, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So in contrast to the, the honor and glory and worship and intimacy of the Son's relationship to God, the angels are God's ministers, They're those who do the bidding of God. Certainly this is an important role, but not in the same category as Jesus. In fact, in a couple places where an angel in Scripture, where an angel appears to a human, and the human, uh, you see this in Revelation, the human is tempted to worship the angel. Um, the angel specifically says, don't worship me. I'm, I am like you, a fellow servant. Worship God. We don't have any similar warnings about Jesus. And then we have a couple longer Old Testament references, starting in verse 8. So going back to talking about the, the role of, the, of Jesus. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So this is a quote from Psalm 45. Like Psalm 2, this is another royal psalm that has in mind the, the kings of Israel. Uh, particularly, this one seems to be about a, a royal wedding. And it seems to call this king God, not Yahweh. It's not it's not that word, but just lower G, God. But unlike other people groups in the time, Israel did not see their kings as gods. And so there seems to be a prophetic, forward-looking aspect to this. This seems to be speaking of a king to come from the line of David who would be much greater than any human king could be, which is what Hebrew picks up on. Jesus as the true king over God's people, can rightly be called God. Jesus rules on his throne forever and ever. He is the one who perfectly loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He is the one who is anointed not with oil, but with the, as it says, the oil of gladness or joy. Now, a couple things stand out as you just 
consider the characteristics of the son's rule there in that passage. We are told that Jesus' rule, he, that he is sovereign, that he is righteous, and that he is glad. What a wonderfully compelling and comforting description of the rule of Jesus. What an inviting reason to come to him and find yourself and submit to his rule. He, he reigns forever. His reign is good and committed to righteousness and that which is good, an appropriate hatred of all that is wicked. There's no secrecy or hidden love of that which is evil in him. And then in his rule, there is joy and gladness. Not only is he greater than angels and more powerful, he is also better and more good, more joy-inducing. Two more quotes. Verse 10. You, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is a quote from Psalm 102, where in context, the, the, it, it is about Yahweh, God the Father. But the author of Hebrews applies this to Jesus, and he does so to uh, assert two qualities of Jesus that he's already talked about in chapter 1, that Jesus was there at creation, you laid the foundations of the earth, and that Jesus is eternal. Jesus, as God incarnate, is eternal and unchanging. No one or nothing else can claim this, not even the angels. They are created beings. Jesus is uncreated. All things were created through him. And this leads to the final evidence of Jesus' identity and worth in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is a quote from Psalm 110, which is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, quoted by Jesus himself. And the way Jesus uses this verse is helpful. So let's look at that. In Matthew 22, we read, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you think, uh, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in Psalm 110, in the spirit, so inspired by the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus asks hard questions. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus is saying that the expected son of David that they were waiting for is not merely a human descendant of David, but also the Lord, and thus greater than David. He is helping them see, using the Old Testament, that the expected Christ is much greater than they think. And subtly saying, though not subtly in other places, that he himself is that Christ. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God and rules over all his enemies, rules over all things. And then the author of Hebrews finishes this contrast by returning to the role of angels. 
So verse 14, last verse in chapter 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I'm sure we could spend a lot of time just talking about angels there, but we're going to move on. All right, what is this all for? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the next word we read is therefore. We are told. Uh, Hebrews is a long written out sermon. And as such, it, is, it goes back and forth between teaching and application. Exposition of God's word and truth, and then exhortation about that. And most of the application comes in the form of warnings. We encounter a number of warnings in Hebrews, and this is the first one. So first four verses of chapter 2, and then that's all we're covering today. Let's read it all together. Um, the, the whole thing together. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, if you didn't catch it, here's the logic of this passage. If the message declared by angels, and this is the reference to the Old Testament, the message through prophets, specifically the, the Mosaic Law and the rest of the Old Testament, if the message declared by angels proved reliable, and if every transgression of that message received a just retribution, in other words, it needed to be heeded, it was not something to, to push away and ignore. If that was true of that message, and if Jesus, then, is greater than the angels, and the message he brings greater than their message, more revealing, more full, more urgent, such a great salvation, the conclusion is that we must heed his mes message, his revelation, his gospel. We must heed him all the more urgently and diligently. And there's both a positive and a negative warning here. The positive warning is pay much closer attention to what you have heard, to what is proclaimed by and about Jesus. This is a message not to be missed. Um, the image that comes to mind in, in hearing that is you, you see images or perhaps hear uh, descriptions of when radio was really the only means, radio and newspaper maybe, were really the only means of, of news getting out. But radio was much quicker than the newspaper. And so when, the, say, the president was giving a speech or there was some important war update or something like that, you see pictures of everyone huddled around the radio listening intently to the message. They, everyone stopped what they were doing to pay careful attention. It's difficult for us to imagine that today because we all get messages all the time in various ways, and there are so many of them, and they all seem and claim to be important and urgent. You've got to see this video. You've got to hear this news. You've got to watch this series. You've got to listen to this podcast. But the message of Jesus stands above all of this. It is weightier. It is of eternal significance. It pertains to our Creator, God, and His Word to us. It pertains to our joy and life. 
we must pay more careful attention to this message than every other message. And there was a negative warning here as well. Lest we drift away. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, it seems that our way of, our logic is a bit different than the logic we get here. We are tempted to think that there, there was a greater sense of urgency in the Old Testament with the Old Testament law because it came with immediate physical consequences. Willful disregard for God's word often came with being cast out of God's people and perhaps even death. This is in part because God's word then was not just God's word, it was also the law of the land, and there was often immediate retribution. Today, with the gospel and the news about Jesus, the matter of judgment can appear less present, less immediate. And so we tend to assume it's less urgent, less severe, less real. We don't see those who reject the gospel immediately meeting God's judgment in ways that would be readily apparent to everyone. And so there is a temptation towards numbness and inaction and pride and self-reliance of putting God on the back burner and being distracted by a million more things that seem more urgent. But this is not the logic of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is saying the gospel is most urgent. It contains a fuller, greater revelation, greater salvation than what the law and the prophets contained. This is the clear picture of God's plan to save a people for himself, establish his kingdom and rule, and display his glory. God has come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, to defeat sin, death, and hell, to create a people for himself. God has made his grace and glory known in abundantly clear ways. And so if we neglect this, we should expect, this is the logic here, we should expect a greater loss and retribution than that experienced on the, under the old covenant, greater than merely being cast out of God's people or dying a physical death. The greatness of the grace in Jesus, which is great. The greatness of the compassion of God in Jesus, which is great, does not, though, justify inaction, ignorance, slowness, or apathy. In fact, the very opposite. It is meant to motivate us to urgent action and concern and movement. It is meant to motivate us to set as the highest priority getting right with God. There is nothing more important in this life. Paul uses some athletic imagery to get this uh, point across in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives to only one receives the prize, so run that you may ob obtain it. He's not saying that in the Christian life only one receives the prize, but he's saying don't be that guy in the back of the race who clearly didn't train and doesn't really care about the race. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Discipline, self-control, focus, purpose. And be aware that it is not always outright rejection or unbelief that leads us to fall away from God. Sometimes we just drift away. We stop paying close attention to what God has said. We stop listening and hold heeding. We stop gathering with God's people and remove ourselves from sources of support and accountability. We get busy and distracted. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I mean, you have both the kind of negative, fearful warning in there, but also, like, how shall we escape? But also, the, the positive impetus, such a great salvation. Don't ignore this. And God did not send a mere prophet or messenger or spokesperson to get this message across. He didn't put the message on a billboard. He didn't send out a text or tweet about it. He himself came in the person of Jesus, to deliver this message, to be this message. God was and is speaking through Jesus and through the gospel message of his life, death, and resurrection. And it is incumbent on us to hear and respond and to draw near to him and to trust in him. And like Paul said, to do this always and with great discipline and diligence until the end. As Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. Let's pray.